In today's historical fireside chats, I want to talk about appeasement, Neville Chamberlain's infamous policy of placating Adolf Hitler. Chamberlain once told Margaret Asquith that the day may come when my cursed visit to Munich will be understood. Clearly, it hasn't. Appeasement has become a very dirty word in politics. If you want to win an argument, one of the easiest ways to discredit your opponent is to accuse them of appeasement. The phrase is used often by both sides of a political debate. Most famously, when Margaret Thatcher wanted to shut down a debate about her policy on Iraq, she told the House of Commons, I seem to hear the stench of appeasement in the yeah. air. Yeah. A rather nauseating stench of appeasement. Gerald Hughes' recent book, the post-war legacy of appeasement, British foreign policy since 1945 is an excellent study of that legacy. Despite the modern uses, at the time appeasement was a respectable policy, and one with actually a long history that we will explore briefly today. This fireside chat is not meant to be a comprehensive discussion of appeasement, nor a detailed account of the Munich crisis, which has been well covered by historians before. Instead, I want to perhaps rescue Chamberlain from the dustbin of history, or at least try to paint him in a slightly more sympathetic light by putting his policies into a greater context and by showing some of the earliest successes of appeasement. So what exactly is appeasement? Paul Kennedy defined it as the policy of settling international quarrels, or for that matter, domestic, by admitting and satisfying grievances through rational negotiations and compromise, thereby avoiding the resort to an armed conflict which would be expensive, bloody and possibly very dangerous. The historian DC Watt simply defines appeasement as a technique for conflict resolution. Although it has been associated with Chamberlain and Hitler, appeasement has historic roots. In fact, it was an essential foreign policy tool for Britain between 1865 and 1939, and it was used frequently when British interests were not directly at stake. Gladstone and Disraeli, in fact, had a fierce debate in 1876 about Disraeli's appeasement of Turkey. And Britain made numerous concessions to both Prussia and Russia between 1863 and 1870 in order to avoid a conflict with them. And even in the lead up to the First World War, Figures such as Sir Edward Grey offered the Kaiser, the King of Germany, territory in order to avert a war. Appeasement then could actually work, but in order for appeasement to work, the appeasing state has to be the more powerful state. And the less powerful state also need to accept appeasement. This was not the case with Hitler's Germany. It is also worth remembering why Chamberlain wanted to appease Germany. The memory of war in Britain was still remarkably strong. People remembered the toll the First World War has taken on its young men. The deaths from the First World War struck at the heart of British political elites. Asquith and Bonin Law, the leaders of the Liberal and Conservative parties, both lost their sons during the First World War. There was a genuine fear then in Britain that the next war would be the last war, would be utterly devastating. The public mood was one of grief. 
and still there was a strong anti-war sentiment throughout popular culture during the 1930s, from Vera Britton's Testament of Youth to Robert Graves' Goodbye to All That. And there was a recognition that the next war would be a war that everyone would suffer from. That there would be no distinction between soldiers and civilians. As Stanley Baldwin said in 1932, I think it is well also for the man in the street to realise there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through. And that fear of war was not restricted to Britain, nor was Chamberlain the only appeaser. In fact, the interwar period is an era of appeasement. Every government in Britain committed appeasement, whether it was by agreeing to reduce repayments for Germany, the rural crisis, the Locarno agreements, or Labour's ambition to disarm as much as possible. Chamberlain policy was actually nothing new, and it seemed to have been matched internationally by the failure of collective security and the impotence of the League of Nations. British colonies at the time also made it very clear to Chamberlain and his government that they would not risk a war for a small, faraway nation, a sentiment Chamberlain himself epitomised in his speech on the 27th of September 1938. How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. And it proved easy for Chamberlain to betray a country of which he knew nothing and to avoid a war with Germany when he agreed to permit the German annexation of the Sudetenland in the Munich Conference of 1938. Hitler had claimed that this was his final territorial ambition and Chamberlain returned home triumphant. He had avoided the war everyone was fearing. This infamous conference resulted in one of the most egregious betrayals in international politics and one of the most inauspicious speeches in history. This morning I had another talk with the German Chancellor Herr Hitler and here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Of course, not everyone agreed appeasement was a good thing at the time. Churchill famously warned the government, you were given the choice between war and dishonour. You chose dishonour and you will have war. The newspaper The Daily Mirror also published a series of articles throughout the late 1930s criticising the government for its policy. And there were some suggestions that Britain and British civilians were willing to go to war for their beliefs. You can see this very clearly, for example, in the international reaction to the Spanish Civil War, which we'll be covering in a later chat. Armed with the condescension of posterity, it is easy to look back and dismiss this as utterly wrong, as a misguided policy. It's easy as well to focus on the anti-appeasement voices of Churchill or the Daily Mirror, but it is worth noting that these were exceptions to the rule, even as they proved to be remarkably prescient. That fear of war was pervasive throughout British society. Although there was a historical precedent for appeasement, there were some aspects of Chamberlain's policy that naturally doomed his attempts. 
Firstly, there was an arrogance to Chamberlain's conviction that led him to seek appeasement in a myopic fashion. When asked how he could trust Hitler when he had broken so many promises to other people, Chamberlain simply quipped, Ah, but this time he had promised me. He believed somehow he would prevail, he would find a way around Hitler when no one else could. His conviction in himself was outmatched, however, by Hitler, who by his very nature was an unappeasable man. Hitler once told Chamberlain that I do not care if there is another world war. Britain did, and it cared deeply. You cannot appease a man who does not care about war. It is also worth noting that Chamberlain was not an absolute appeaser, as he is often accused. There was a limit to Chamberlain's own belief. Following the German invasion of Poland in September 1939, it was Chamberlain who issued an ultimatum to Germany, even if he was a little bit reluctant. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. You can imagine what a bitter blow it is to me that all my long struggle to win peace has failed. The failure to avoid war was a great personal burden for Chamberlain, and you can hear that very clearly in his voice. This is a moment of profound disappointment. This is a moment when his conviction has failed clearly. And he made that disappointment abundantly clear to the House of Commons in his speech. Everything that I have worked for, he told fellow MPs, everything that I have hoped for, everything that I have believed in during my public life has crashed into ruins. There is only one thing left for me to do. That is, to devote what strengths and powers I have to forwarding the victory of the cause for which we have to sacrifice so much. I cannot tell what part I may be allowed to play myself. I trust I may live to see the day when Hitlerism has been destroyed and a liberated Europe has been re-established. As we shall see next time, Chamberlain would play a very limited part in the forthcoming war. There is a very sad irony in the fact that one of the most famous songs of 1939 was Bing Crosby's Wishing, and no amount of wishing could help Neville Chamberlain avoid his worst fears. Wishing will make it so Just keep on wishing there are a lot of aspects to appeasement that this short chat doesn't cover, and I'd thoroughly recommend reading the works of historians such as Gerald Hughes, Paul Kennedy, D.C. Watt, to get a greater understanding of this period and the policy. But hopefully, what this brief chat has done is put into context some of the reasons behind Neville Chamberlain's doomed policy. <laughs>